Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today is May 8th, and as we take these first steps toward reopening the economy, your City Club is continuing with our virtual forums for the moment. As has become our practice these days, we're presenting our forum today from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner. We're grateful for their partnership. In this COVID era, Internet access has emerged as perhaps one of the most important challenges facing education in both rural and urban areas. Some 100 million Americans don't have access to broadband Internet. And when schools and colleges sent students home and moved to online learning, those families were left behind. In the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, that's some 9,000 families who lacked a high-speed connection, a computer or tablet, or very likely both. And of course, this isn't just a problem for education. These families are also cut off from the primary means of applying for unemployment benefits, reaching out to a physician, or even just ordering cleaning supplies online. So this isn't just a school problem, it's a shared problem. And today we're going to talk about how the region's largest urban public school district is grappling with this digital divide, as well as the state of a larger national effort to move internet access from a perceived luxury to a piece of national infrastructure. Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous members, sponsors, and donors who have supported these virtual forums and continue to do so. You can see a full list at cityclub.org slash thank you. And if you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate or become a member at cityclub.org slash members. Our speaker today is Eric Gordon. He was appointed chief executive officer of the Cleveland Metro School District in June of 2011. He was a key leader in working with other leaders to craft the Cleveland Plan, which was a revolutionary package of education reform legislation signed into law in 2012. That seems so long ago. <laughs> and also for collaborating and leading the collaboration of the launch of Say Yes to Cleveland, an initiative that brings support services and scholarships to Cleveland students for the next 25 years. He's a national leader currently serving as the chair of the board for the Council of Great City Schools, which is a member organization representing 70 large, more than 70 large urban districts across the country. You get to participate with your questions when you text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them in. Eric Gordon, we are so glad to have you. Welcome back to the City Club. Great to be back. Thanks for having me, Dan. So... Let's start with how the transition to remote learning has been going for the Cleveland Metro School District. And I say remote because I know that largely it's not online. Yeah, so uh, when the closure happened, we knew that uh, our families weren't going to be able to simply flip to a digital uh, content. And frankly, I think even school districts who thought that was going to work well have struggled in that environment. And so we have, uh, from the very beginning, been printing materials, which we now mail to Homes Weekly. Uh, grade level appropriate materials that kids can work from. Uh, our teachers have been uh, um, using homework hotline strategies to stay in touch with kids and families and we've been putting a lot of effort in personalization. Each student in each family has very unique needs 
um, and capacity to do a remote learning. Um, while we've simultaneously also worked to distribute now 13,000 devices and uh, in, in the process of nearly 9,000 hotspots to create the connectivity that lets our families participate in a more online way. Eric, how many students do you have in the, in the district? We have just over 38,000 students in the city. And how many families, how many ind distinct families then? Um, I would estimate that's probably about 27,000 families with those 38,000 children. But you're talking about roughly a third of the uh, the third of the community you serve, without without a, a, a computer. I'm sitting here looking at a laptop, looking at you on a laptop, without a, a device that we've come to think of as absolutely necessary for for just communicating with the world and being a, a citizen, and without broadband internet access. What. What we found, we did a telephone survey uh, of our families where you could type one if you had internet, two if you don't, that sort of thing, because we can't do an electronic survey. Uh, what we found is that more than a third, probably closer to 40% of our families did not have high-speed reliable internet in their home, and close to two-thirds did not have a device other than a smartphone uh, that they could connect even if they had uh, that that service and so uh, we spent a significant effort in redeploying devices that we already had in the district we've bought uh, over 4700 additional chromebooks we're now buying ipads because chromebooks you just can't get anymore uh, we've brought bought uh, 8,000 hotspots um, uh, and then another thousand uh, with PCs for people here locally and have gotten donations and so we've been working uh, since this began to get people connected uh, with a strategy that helps us in the short term, but has an eye toward a long-term connectivity that we have to insist comes out of this. I want you to talk more about the long-term connectivity and kind of put on your hat as the chair of the board for Great City Schools. Cleveland's not unique in facing this problem of, of broadband internet access. And we are, as a, as a nation now, you know, in this moment where it has become more important than ever. Uh, we've always thought it was nifty. We always thought it was, was useful and now it's indispensable. Yeah, so when I talk to my peers across the country, there's 76 large urban districts in our coalition, and all of us have some degree of this problem. Cleveland, unfortunately, is the fourth worst connected city in the country. So we are kind of ground zero. This is what it looks like at its worst when a community does not connect their community. But even in more affluent uh, urban districts that have more of a county footprint, uh, even in that environment, they're seeing the same kinds of tough problems that we're seeing. And we're working as a national coalition to make sure um, that this becomes an advocacy uh, through state and federal advocacy to be an infrastructure solution and not simply a temporary solution uh, that ends when the crisis that we're in ends, but that, that we use this um, as an opportunity to once and for all solve a national problem. This has come up a couple of times in the past few weeks with our uh, other forums that we've hosted. A conversation with Rayshon Ray at Brookings Institution and also a conversation with Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly, both of whom raised this as a crucial issue around not just equity, but also economic development for the future. Um, I, I was just what you said before, though, that we're the fourth worst city when it comes to connectivity kind of shocked me. I, I, I did not know that. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's really... Um, 
criminal that we allow this to happen in our city, that we allow this many kids and families. And, and I can only give you statistics on families who have kids in my system that we're not even capturing from my data, uh, those who have kids in other uh, learning environments or don't have children at all and also don't have connectivity. Um, but also the response, at least initially, has been schools need to fix this when this is not a school problem. You mentioned on the front end of the program that uh, this is about telehealth. This is about filing for unemployment. This is So it's not a school problem. And then also the solutions have always, often been throw short-term solutions. So get hotspots out, park buses in communities. Which one of the people listening to this forum is standing next to a school bus in order to access uh, their internet? Uh, that, that would be a criminal response for, for us to say, we're going to solve this in a short term, and then when life does return to normal, do we really expect that I'm going to knock on doors and say, remember that device I gave you? Give it back. Is that going to be our response, or are we going to instead come together as a community, uh, Council President Kelly being a really strong supporter, uh, the mayor, the county executive, uh, the Cleveland Foundation, and others, um, and say, we have to switch this from a luxury that some people have to a public utility, just like we did when electricity was new 100 years ago. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Eric Gordon. He's CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. You can join us with your questions when you tweet them at the City Club or text them to 330-541-5794. I'm Dan Malthrop with the City Club, and uh, we're pleased to be presenting our forum today from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. Eric, um, with a, just to take a step back in the transition to uh, to online learning, or remote learning, rather, um, the, you spoke about the level of preparedness in terms of uh, capacity for family, family capacity to access internet, uh, access the internet, access online learning, and so forth. And we've temporarily solved some of those problems. How prepared were your teachers to make this transition? Well, I think in some ways, um, by being urban educators who have uh, long faced the challenges that our communities have, that actually gave us a little bit of a leg up because we already knew uh, that this was going to be more differentiated. It was going to need to be a different kind of level of support. Um, so while I can't say it has been easy for our educators, uh, they really have risen to the challenge. Um, and one of the first things we did was survey educators and say, where will you be most productive? Because if you are an educator who is not comfortable with technology, then telling you to get on Zoom classrooms or Google classrooms is not going to allow you to be a productive teacher. And so teachers really differentiated. And so we have teachers who are creating content uh, for WUAB and our partnership to broadcast uh, television lessons. We have teachers who are running Zoom classrooms and doing those kinds of things because they're really comfortable with it. We have other teachers who are uh, uh, manning phone lines so you can call your child's school and get put through to talk to a teacher. Uh, we have even others who are, uh, you know, doing kind of uh, mailing the support and using the tools that they already had, Classroom Dojo and Jupiter, uh, to stay in touch with their kids. But what all of our teachers are doing, which is what I'm most proud of, is routine uh, parent-teacher-student conferences to say, hey, Mr. Malthrop, how are you doing? How are your children doing? And routine is defined by the family. And so for some families, we were getting, you're calling too often. I had one mom say to me, you call me 25 times a day. Well, of course, I'm not calling her 25 times a day, but that was our signal that she's overwhelmed and that we have to back off some of that. Um, I've had other moms saying, I'm not getting enough. My child's so disconnected. 
So that family we've got to ramp up for. And those virtual uh, parent-student-teacher conferences have been so important to meet every kid and every family where they are. What else are you hearing directly from families? Um, you know, even families who have, uh, you know, our middle-income, uh, well-educated families um, are really struggling, particularly with younger learners, with the volume of support it takes to support their children in a remote learning environment. And so, you know, we've had families who have said, look, I just can't do all of this. I can't be free to put my child on the Google Classroom at one o'clock because that's when their class is meeting. Um, you know, and so we're, we're hearing just the, the difficulty of balancing it. And then when we dig into the majority of our families who are essential workers, who are, who are doing the work that we're counting on, um, one mom reached out to me and she said, Mr. Gordon, I have three kids, I have two jobs, both are considered essential, I can't do this. And we said, you know, that's okay. Take the learning packets, your children can work on them, have your teacher check in with your children, don't try to do all of the rest. I've had it all the way to the other side where I had a high school student reach out and said, I'm so stressed I'm doing all of this online stuff and we actually had to help her manage that just because you can do all this, you still have to find that space. So I know I'm saying the same thing again, but it really, the, the secret of what I think is allowing us to move through this is the understanding that it is individualized to the single child in a household, not even the household, but the children within it that's making a difference. When you transition to the, this remote learning and you know the plan, I'm sure that you saw immediately that you had to be ready, you and your teachers had to be ready to deliver this through the end of the school year. Um, now it's looking like next school year is not gonna be a, a return to normal, quote unquote, but is going to be something different. So what needs to change to make, it, to make next year successful for students and families? Well, I think there's a lot unknown at this point, so um, it'd be hard to speculate at this point what school's really going to look like. But what we are doing right now is we are uh, actually studying how this has worked and for whom. Uh, so we're just about to launch a survey that our parents, our students, and our teachers will get uh, so that we can learn which strategies that we deployed worked well and for whom. Again, going back to it's, it's individualized. No strategy worked well for everybody. So what worked well and for whom? Uh, we've also been, um, I'm on seven calls a week, state and nationally, talking to peers. Uh, and so I have a tablet that sits right next to me where I'm jotting down every idea that I'm hearing and I'm sharing the ideas we're generating so that we have a ton of ways to think about this. Uh, simultaneously to that learning and that research, um, we want to see the public health guidelines to see what can we do. Uh, what are the conditions going to be? And then with all of that information, we'll be able to uh, sort through a plan. What I think we can expect is based on what we've seen from the governor, and I really, I really appreciate that the governor uses giant stage winks to let us know what's coming. <laughs> uh, so if you pay attention, uh, we know that we're going to have stringent uh, distancing. Um, so if we're going to have to keep kids six feet apart in classrooms, schools weren't built for that. Uh, so does that mean we run A day and B day and have half a class come at one point and the other half to, at the other point so that 25 people can be together over the course of two days? Uh, does that mean we do stagger starts and ends when we bring in children? Does it mean that some children, maybe older children, spend more time in the virtual and remote environment and they come to school for tutorials and supports, which is actually how we run summer school here in Cleveland typically? Uh, is it, you know, 
some mixture of all of that, right? Um, and I think as the public health continues to unfold, we'll be able to start saying more definitive what that's going to look like. What we do know is it's not going to look like what we left. It's going to be different for the foreseeable future. And so we're working hard to be prepared for that. This creates a lot of opportunities for districts large and small to rethink instructional delivery, to rethink the goals of instruction, to rethink how classrooms can exist. Um, what sort of, if, if you had a truly blank slate, what would you like to see? Well, so this is a, it's been the, one of the few fun parts of this is to think about how do we finally abandon long time uh, antiquated constructs like the agrarian calendar or the notion of second grade as a construct when actually child development would tell you that we should think more in bands. You know, what should primary students learn and be able to do? What should intermediate students and, and upper level students? So in an ideal world, I think we would finally move to mastery being what we focus on and not seat time. Right now in American education, uh, seat time drives learning, not learning drives seat time. Um, we would move at developmentally appropriate levels. We would get to finally a uh, a skinnier essential curriculum like other nations have where we continue to lag behind, particularly in reading and math. Uh, one of the ingredients that those nations all have is a essential learning curriculum for literacy and numeracy. Um, but our country still, used, still uses the mild, wide, inch deep strategy. So we would move to an essential curriculum. Um, and when you move to those kinds of environments, learning becomes much more fun too, because then you're exploring in an inquiry way, things that you're interested in, that you care about, um, that you're curious about. Um, you know, why is it that we, uh, you know, wait until we've beat you through 13 years of seat time before we start having these kind of learning forms that we're experiencing today, instead of having these kinds of, of learning forms, the, the way kids are learning all along the way. Um, so there's lots of opportunity here. And again, I think CMSD has a little bit of a leg up because we have been pushing those envelopes for different kinds of learning patterns, mastery schools, inquiry models, um, in, and not just kind of the sit and get strategy. We've been making that transition. This could give us the potential to go far further than we even were able to under the constructs that existed before the shutdown. What are the things you're most worried about? Well, I'm worried about our kids and families' social-emotional needs um, now and when, when this is over. Um, and that has all kinds of manifestations. Will people come back? Um, if, if I'm a parent and if I'm an essential worker who has lived through the toughest that this can give, do I feel safe sending my kid back to, to school? Or am I going to look to homeschool even though it's hard? Or am I going to look for a digital classroom that has to be excellent and not just a in-name-only kind of strategy? Um, you know, I'm worried about the stress issues that kids and families are under. I, I mentioned a couple of personal examples that I've worked through. I'm worried, you know, my community is 80, 86% people of color, and we know COVID-19 is having an enormous impact in you know, black and Hispanic communities. We've been fortunate so far in Ohio and in Cleveland that we've seen low death rates, but if that starts to creep up, how do I help kids and families who might have grieving, not just for a single person they know, but many members of a community? And how are we prepared to help with that? So I'm really, really worried about how we're caring for kids and families. Um, 
and, and then I'm worried that we're going to work hard to put everything back and that we're not actually going to rethink policies uh, that have driven uh, the seat time and the, you know, the wide curriculum instead of the deep curriculum. I'm worried that the opportunity for us to actually create something better for kids and families could be lost in our desire to get back to a quote unquote normal state. You and I have spoken before, and you've brought up repeatedly at the state of the schools the number of homeless families that you serve. Um, how are they doing? Well, the honest answer is it's sometimes hard to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, these are the families that are the hardest to keep track of, the hardest to find. We do have a full uh, uh, department for homeless services, our Project Act department. We have worked hard to get technologies into shelters where we know many of our kids and families are. Um, but when you think of all the risks that our kids and families are already experiencing, magnify that by not having a safe place or a, a consistent safe place to be. Uh, so again, we're trying to do that through a lot of individualized care. We're bringing food cards so that people can go purchase food, um, and delivering meals, delivering books, delivering technology, uh, working closely with the shelters where we know kids and families are. Um, you know, again, part of what has helped is we try hard to uh, keep our homeless um, and foster youth population in schools uh, that can support them near where the shelters are. And so not only is Project ACT and that amazing team doing just incredible work, but the educators that were already working with those families are familiar with these settings and are also able to try to stay engaged as well. Um, but that just lifts up the example of the incredible need, the incredible risk of our community. And Dan, just we need to remind ourselves, Cleveland, you know, fourth worst connected city in the country, we have the single highest childhood poverty in the country. Detroit isn't even as bad as we are. And, and so, you know, that's why I said at the beginning, my peers across the country are struggling with the same things. But Cleveland is really ground zero that you know, we can either decide that this is finally unacceptable and we're going to do things like closing the uh, internet gap, or we're going to be very visibly deciding that this is acceptable and, and, uh, and that it's going to continue to be allowed. Creating wider access to broadband and, and subsidized access to, to broadband internet is a goal of one of the working groups of Cleveland Rising. And we've been talking about it a lot um, elsewhere as well. We have an organization, Digital C, here in town that is devoted to these issues. But how much will it cost? Well, I think Digital C's estimate is that it's probably a $36 million lift to get the full infrastructure in place to connect all of Cleveland's families. That's obviously a big number. It's a small number in an infrastructure world. And there are ways to do that if we really do believe that it's a public utility Uh, So, for example, Ohio has not passed its capital budget yet. Um, The capital budget could skinny out things like new school buildings, which I would put off for a while, if we redirected that to infrastructure dollars to to connect people. And the capital budget is betting on the future, so it's not cash in hand now. It is bonding against future, which actually makes it easier for the state to do. Uh, The federal government, too, could be putting huge resources in the stimulus package to say, if we're going to spend the money anyway, I've spent $2.5 million on hotspots. They will last for one year before the subscription expires. What if we could put that same $2.5 million to permanent connectivity? 
And the beauty of Digital C, who we're working closely with and we're working to be part of the solution, is that Digital C as a nonprofit can deliver a monthly service that's $4 cheaper than the hotspot I'm currently buying. And so I can actually be the customer that builds the volume so that our kids and families get connected. And then when they leave us, they can have $16 a month access, which is actually cheaper than the cable package or streaming that a lot of people are relying on absent being able to afford internet in our community. That strikes me as a, a pretty solid math, pretty good calculation, one that is hard to um, hard to dismiss out of hand. And I'll tell you what, Eric, next week we're going to be talking with State Senator Matt Dolan, who chairs the Finance Committee, and State Senator Nikki Antonio, and I'll ask him about it. Does that sound good? Sounds great to me. Okay. If you'd like to join... They, they already know what I think. I think they probably do, but we'll get them on the record. If you'd like to join our conversation with Eric Gordon, he's the CEO of the Cleveland Metro School District, go ahead and text a question to 330-541-5794. That's a Google Voice number we set up just for your text questions. So text them over that way. Again, that number, 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter then you should feel free to tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. Uh, this question came in uh, prior to—I'm going to switch the Q&A because there are a lot of questions, and um, they're more important than mine. This question came in prior to our show even beginning uh, from—and I'll be transparent—Hugh McKay. He's a City Club board member, and he says, Kudos to your stead- for your steadfast commitment to community partnering, including the CMSD's nationally recognized partnership with the Cleveland Metro Bar Association on the 3 R's program through which, as you know, over 400 Cleveland attorneys monthly go to every CMSD high school along with Shaw High School in East Cleveland and have now reached over 14 years, 35,000 students to engage with them on the law and the Constitution. Going forward, what do you see as opportunities or what are your with, what's on your wish list for strengthening community partnerships and creating new community partnerships to help the district bridge the digital divide? Well, so I think... Um there's, you know, we have a lot to do to continue to improve, but if there's a brag point about what we've done in Cleveland compared to any city in the country, and not as a district, but as a community, it's partnership, 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 partnership. Um, there is almost nothing the district has done that you can't point to the partners with it, prefectly, uh, the, the higher education compact, the three R's program, any number, true to you, any number of them. And, and frankly, my colleagues around the country are just in awe of that. Um, we want to be a partner in the digital divide solution too. We're working closely with Digital C. Um, I'm in contact with President uh, Council President Kelly one or two times a week, who is very, you know, really thinking aggressively about how to use city resources and infrastructure in really exciting ways. Um, I, I've been working with the Cleveland Foundation, who um, wants to put some pretty big bets in bringing people together around this. Um, and in Frankly, I don't want to lead this one. I don't think that the school district should lead this one because this is bigger than schools. It is that telehealth. It is unemployment. It is these forums. It is work. Um, And so we want to be not this time the convening partner, but one of the joining partners uh, with a coalition across this community that says enough is enough. We're solving this problem. Well, and city council, too, has been moving uh, moving meetings, their meetings and committee meetings online so that to create more civic engagement, which is not much use if you can't get online. So um, so there's definitely an obvious partner there, including this, because Kevin Kelly just uh, sent a, a question in as well. Council President Kevin Kelly, he said he says, excellent job developing the short term hotspot solution. As far as long term solutions, have our legacy providers such as AT&T and Spectrum been of any help? 
So we studied all of the providers. Um, and while I, I think every provider is trying to make available low cost or in some case no cost, um, it really hasn't had the broad impact that we would hope um, for any number of reasons. One is you actually have to be able to deploy the equipment, get it there. Another is you have to help people maneuver through the sometimes very complicated enrollment processes. Uh, people also then get screened out if they have bad credit. Well, of course, lots of my families have had credit issues. Um, and so uh, as a long-term solution, uh, frankly, we have not looked to the, the um, paid industry or the for-profit industry. That's actually why we, we are really doubling down on working with Digital C. The not-for-profit nature of it uh, makes it a scalable solution that remains affordable long-term for families. Um, also, that we can be the customer for the foreseeable future cuts all of those credit issues out and, and lets us get the uh, you know, get the equipment into the homes without worrying about some of those barriers. And so um, while I think the, uh, the for-profit companies have certainly tried to do what they can to make, you know, short-term access available, um, even the short-term access I'm buying is more expensive than the long-term access that a digital C strategy can put in place. And I would think, too, Eric Gordon, that the Cuyahoga Metro Housing Authority and community development corporations around the city would be helpful partners in this as well. Yeah, Jeff Patterson's been a huge advocate about uh, getting our public housing, you know, infrastructure wired and turned on. Um, and that's another example of if we think about this as a public utility and an in infrastructure investment and not simply a for-profit strategy, which makes it a luxury, uh, we can get to solutions. There's actually lots of infrastructure to lean on. So if we take public housing as an example, my facilities where we can put on the rooftop some of the booster equipment needed to to create the access from a satellite kind of strategy. Uh, Cleveland Public Power's infrastructure as a municipally owned uh, utility already, suddenly you're starting to see an infrastructure where you can envision turning on every home in Cleveland. Um, along the same, well, we're gonna stick with the, the digital divide questions for a moment. The city, what cities are at the top of the connectivity list and how did they do it? What can we learn? So, um, I don't know that anybody's at top of the list, and I can't say that I can name who's best connected. Uh, what I can say is uh, Baltimore City has really come together as a uh, community and has a plan in place, much like we're trying to do here. Sacramento City just announced, uh, I think yesterday, maybe the day before, a citywide connect strategy. Atlanta's trying to uh, do some similar work. Um, and I think the learning comes out of, you know, what are each of us doing? And so even on our national calls, um, you know, as I came back to in my IT, people are talking with people across the country. As I came back with ideas, uh, we actually are the city that offered the idea about what if the district is the customer and not the family? And for many of my peers who have even larger um, immigrant populations, many who are non-docked and, you know, are fearful, they're never going to sign up. The fact that we become the customer takes that fear off the table of, you know, will this be used to find me and to, um, you know, deport me. Um, and so there's a lot of buzz and excitement across the country about Cleveland's strategy of making the district the customer and then handing off the utility at some point. Um, but what we've also learned is, you know, how did people uh, rapidly deploy and get devices in hands? Uh, we learned from Atlanta, for example, um, that families don't want 
people in their homes to set this stuff up. And so part of our strategy includes a district partner who will go with technicians and say, you already know me. I'm your teacher. I'm your principal. I'm somebody you know. And I'm coming in your home to make sure that you feel safe with what we're doing here. Um, those, those things that, that, you know, they're nuanced, they're important, but if we're going to connect, we have to reach past not just the technical barriers, but the long adaptive barriers that, that we've conditioned people uh, to be fearful of and to be su- suspicious of. Um, and that's a learning from Atlanta. Well, and that's also an opportunity for teachers or other education professionals, the, the family support specialists from Say Yes, for instance, to do a home visit and be able to assess also what other needs the family might have. Yeah, lots of our educators, including Say Yes and our other educators, are of their own volition um, doing home visits, uh, social distancing them, standing outside and, and talking through the, you know, the door, uh, that sort of thing, just to check in with our kids and families, uh, to drop off care packages. Uh, you know, uh, One teacher actually did sidewalk chalk drawings in front of every house that she was able to. Not all of our kids have that opportunity, but uh, you know, did that. Um, and another teacher, before we were able to mail materials, literally uh, printed and mailed the materials to her classroom to make sure that they had them. And so, you know, our, our educators have risen to the occasion in so many ways. And I know people think that, you know, a lot of people think, oh, teachers are just sitting home. First of all, it's not a just, it's really hard doing this remotely. Um, but, but they're going out, they're going and visiting and checking and doing those. And particularly where we haven't heard from you, uh, we got to go find you and make sure you're okay. And so I'm really proud of what our educators have done. And okay. by the way, it's National Teacher Appreciation uh, Week, so we got to appreciate them. I was loud just and proud. about to say. I was just about to say that. Thank you for raising that. We certainly thank all the educators in the CMSD as well as every other school district uh, who are with us today. We're talking with Eric Gordon. He's the CEO of the Cleveland Metro School District. You can get your questions in at 330-541-5794. You can text them. I should say text them to 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club. Uh, with the um, the move to remote learning, uh, standardized testing that was scheduled for the spring was um, put on ice. Should it come back? And uh, one of our listeners is asking, will the CMSD take a public stand against high-stakes state testing next year, considering the lack of evidence that this data leads to improved instructional practices and student achievement? Well, I think this gives us a great opportunity to rethink what accountability looks like and means. So I don't think we should go back to no accountability, but I think our country has gotten hyper-focused on these harsh, high-stakes accountabilities that do not respond to, you know, child development appropriateness. So I'll give you one example is high schools. High schools in our country, we have this very rigid understanding that you get four years of high school. And if it takes you five years, there's something wrong with you. Well, that's ridiculous. Even colleges have six years to complete a four-year degree because they recognize that different learners move at different paces. But we have this rigid lockstep, you will take this test in ninth grade, you will take this in 10th grade, whether you're ready or not, as opposed to how do we actually assess that and assess, not just test, assess that you have mastered the content you need in order to be a successful young adult uh, post high school. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, there's huge opportunities here at the state and national policy level, but it means that our state and national policy leaders have to be willing to take advantage of it and not just try to move backwards to what we already had. And so let me give you an example from Ohio. 
House Bill 197 created lots of flexibilities for schools that we needed. But the language that put us in remote learning very specifically says remote learning is used to complete your mandatory hours. So that comes with an assumption that hours should be mandatory as opposed to a shift to mastery. So as we work forward with policymakers, both for next year, which is going to need to continue to be flexible, but for the long term, we have to actually think about what is appropriate in child development and learning compared to the structures that have contained us and then measuring against those structures, uh, which is, I think, a big part of why uh, it hasn't worked in the way uh, some might have wanted it to. Another question uh, now from a, somebody who identifies themselves as working with City Year Cleveland, which um, we should just throw them in with Teacher Appreciation Week. We thank them for their yeah. service inside of schools as well. And with this pandemic, I'm worried about students losing progress and gains made this year in addition to falling further behind grade level. Are there any plans or opportunities for online summer enrichment for students? So before I answer the enrichment, I, I think this is really important for us to remember. We lost time for children to learn. Children did not learn, lose the ability to learn. And we have to shift our focus and say, when we are able to resume learning in whatever way we are, where is a child and how do we move them toward their mastery goals? And so you may not have learned to read at the time we wanted you to, but that does not mean you can't learn to read. And I think there's this kind of mythology that we have this lost generation, that we've lost learning, when what we've lost is time. Um, now, I know that wasn't the question from City Year, and so the, the short answer is yes, we do plan to engage our students in multi multiple mediums, including low-tech packages, uh, you know, homework hotlines, um, and higher-tech ways of continuing to support learning and to slow that you know, learning loss where we're not keeping students engaged. But the bigger question is, as we restart, how do we assess where a child is, where their learning stopped, and then how do we resume that learning from where they are, as opposed to uh, this kind of trap of thinking somehow because we weren't able to teach it on March 25th, it can't be learned. And I also have to shout out City Year. So in Cleveland, we say, is City Year ready to rock? <laughs> um, the, this, uh, this week, another question about um, budgetary challenges. This week, you um, received word of some $5, five million in budget cuts hitting now uh, with less than two months left in, the, in your fiscal year. Um, could you address those challenges and what you believe the federal government should do and what citizens can do to assist the CMSD? Well, so this is another place where I think we should really appreciate Governor DeWine, who has been giving us the stage wink that pay attention, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And you, if you've paid any attention in Cleveland, you've heard me also saying it on not only our local stage, but a national stage. You know, school districts, municipalities, states, by law, must balance their budget. Cuts are coming. Uh, at the same time our, that our kids and families are going to need more, our revenue is going to decrease. There is only one institution in our country that can solve that problem, and that is Congress. Congress passed the CARES Act, $2.2 trillion, and it had $13.5 billion in it for K-12 education. And I'm grateful for that, that a portion of that will come to Cleveland. But if we even look back to the uh, Recovery Act in the recession, that act was only three quarters of a trillion dollars, and it had $110 billion for education. 
So that gives you a sense of the magnitude of what's likely to be needed. Um, and so my organization, the Council of the Great City Schools, sent a letter to Congress with 62 superintendents signing on. I was the first signature as the chair, 61 of my peers, urging Congress to pass a $200 billion package when the next stimulus comes out. That is for K-12 education, whether you're urban, rural, or suburban, whether you're public, charter, or non-public, um, because we're going to need it. So what can citizens do? contact your congressperson, contact senators. Um, right now is the time. The House is starting to, to consider the stimulus package that uh, is focusing on states and cities, and we're not hearing enough about K-12. Um, and particularly our uh, senators and Senator Portman is going to be really important to us. Fortunately, Senator Portman is a friend of education. He's been a great partner for us in the district. Um, but we also know that um, the Senate Republicans, at least at this point, are not fully supportive of an aid package to the size that we think we need. So please reach out um, and urge your Congress people. And I will say, if you need any support, go to the district website, click the button. It's the, right on the front page. There's a sample letter, there's contact information, and there's our advocacy letter and my board's resolution urging Congress to act. Putting together a couple of questions from two different listeners here, how are youth being engaged as part of the solution? And also, are you considering having district parents on any advisory boards? So um, youth and parents are engaged, um, you know, for example, in graduation planning, we have kids and parents who have been working with the district team in these remote spaces to help us think about it. Um, so that's one example. I will also tell you, I have never spent as much time on Instagram and talking directly with young people as I have in this world. Um, for those of you who've never used Instagram, it works completely opposite of how everything else does. It's been a complete new learning for me, which is a perfect reminder. Uh, we we all need to be reminded of the complexities of learning, uh, but I'm trying really hard to talk with kids directly there. Um, we also have some, you know, a student advisory in every high school, and so um, our high school uh, people have tapped into some of those young people. Um, I actually have a big surprise for the end of National Teacher Appreciation Week coming here in about an hour to all of our educators that our kids put together. Um, so that kids and will, will that be shareable on Instagram? It will be pushed out as soon as our educators get it. All so right. follow us on we our will, social we will media. For the adults on online, make sure that you uh, follow my Twitter or my Facebook. It'll be there too. Okay. Uh, but for the kids, it'll be on Instagram. <laughs> um, but you know, and and I am listening. So for example. Um, I've been pushed a number of times, why don't we just do a digital graduation? And the reason we won't just do a digital graduation is because the kids don't want it. Um, and so we are using a digital strategy, but we're pairing it with this, another strategy, which we'll be sharing soon, um, with more of a physical kind of presence, a safe one, and committing to when we can come back together, still having a full graduation because kids want it. So. Um, we're trying hard to be good listeners and to use formal and informal ways to keep our kids and families engaged in the decision-making of the district. Um, the district has, uh, has uh, the, this question here, what services is CMSD continuing to provide to students with IEPs and 504 plans, and what direction have you provided intervention specialists and others who work with students with disabilities? Yeah, so uh, first of all, we are still holding IEP meetings and planning and adjusting planning uh, for that. Those are being done remotely now, but our teachers and intervention specialists and regular ed teachers are working with parents and where appropriate students on their IEPs. 
Um, also, all of that printed material that we have been sending to homes, we our um, intervention team has been creating differentiation strategies that kids and families can work home with and that their intervention specialists can support in those virtual student parent teacher conferences. Um, our related service providers, our occupational therapists and others have been trying to provide in-home activities that students and families can do. Um, but, you know, this is an example of uh, kids who are more fragile than others in and sometimes one or many ways uh, where we're going to have to continue to support where we can and be prepared when we can bring more normalcy. I mentioned differentiating the school year with who gets more touch or less touch. It may be that if we're in kind of a mixed space, our students you know, who are more fragile get more direct contact time and support, while those who are more able to work independently and with less direct adult day-to-day uh, -day need stay in a more remote space. So we have to look both short-term and long-term uh, to make sure we're supporting those students well. This question comes from one of your school nurses. While researching school setups and schedules and models with your partnerships, has there been talk of wraparound services for all schools using the whole child, whole school, whole community model with internet access through this model that would benefit all schools, students, healthcare agencies, and the community? So, you know, the big bet on Say Yes is that it's a community wraparound strategy, not just a scholarship program. Um, and so, you know, all of our move is to try to make this much more of a community-centered model. Um, we were already exploring an integrated health model before this happened. That task force has continued, and that includes telehealth that would be available through schools, uh, which Ohio finally has made legal. It was not legal in our state until just this year. Um, and so we are trying to think about what is a holistic and integrated model. Um, one of the things that has really been interesting about Say Yes is, you know, I knew the bet was not just scholarships, but support services. Now the whole world gets the support, or at least our world, mm -hmm. gets that the support services matter more. Uh, you know, our family support specialists are not only supporting their 16 schools, they've adopted other schools and are working double time. Uh, we are also ramping up the next uh, wave of schools, another 26 in the coming school year, despite being in this remote. Uh, if we needed any evidence that it was the right bet for this community to place, we have it. Um, I also just have to shout out our nurses um, because they have done, again, an incredible job, um, including our nurses when we did our closure, collected all of our personal protective equipment that was going to go unused and got it to the Cuyahoga County uh, Health uh, Board so that it was redistributed to our hospital and health care system. Um, and also uh, the ways they've stayed in touch with kids and families to provide uh, remote support and counseling for health and mental health needs. So uh, a great thanks to my nurses, too. Uh, the this this questioner is asking, I'm wondering what we as Clevelanders can do to help the district in ways that are not financial. I've heard of many who are interested in providing support but cannot do so financially. How can we help? And I would invite you to start with say yes and the mentoring that is needed there. Yeah, so um, one thing that anybody with a degree can do is to sign up for the Say Yes Mentoring uh, Program. You do that through College Now Greater Cleveland. Um, we actually are bucking the trend uh, nationally. So nationally, we are seeing a large fall off on the number of young people who plan to go to a post-secondary education next year. Um, and in uh, communities of color like ours, it's up to 40% of kids who have decided they may not go to school. Uh, 
in Cleveland, we're actually about 2% ahead of where we were the same point last year, meaning that at least on paper, our kids are still committing to go to school. Um, but if we thought mentoring mattered before, it's going to matter even more greatly now. And so anybody who has a degree uh, can sign up to mentor. It is an electronic platform. It's two emails a month. When we're allowed to be live again, it'll be three meetings a year. And I can say as a person who mentors uh, through that program, two changed lives forever. Uh, so that's certainly something you can do. Um, the other things that you can do if you are in the city is check on kids and families. Make sure that they're okay. Make sure that we're not seeing experiences of neglect because of kids and families uh, who necessarily have to work and so the kids are left alone. Or signs of stress and, and report them to us. We have a hotline on our website for families that are in stress and our rapid response team is still in place. Our psychologists and counselors are still working with families. So that's a no-cost thing that everybody can do. Um, the third is advocate. We need the stimulus package. Congress needs to act, and it needs to include K-12 resources. We K-12 education as a sector is the second largest employer in our country. So even if people don't think it's good for kids, which they should, um, if you want to keep people off the unemployment lines, keep them working in education. And so advocacy for that, for the Internet um, um, at state and national levels is really important and no cost. So those are three things you can do right off the bat. And by the way, you have a levy in November. We do have a levy renewal in November, and we're going to need support. Um, that's 12% of our budget, $67 million, in a time that uh, money matters more than ever because uh, more cuts are coming. You're, I was just going to say you're anticipating future cuts in the coming school year as well. I think it's inevitable. You know, it's not that the state wants to. Um, but, you know, the state has to balance their budget. And the fact that we saw a $750 million hole um, in a matter of a couple of months um, foreshadows, and the governor again has given us the big giant stage wink hint, more is coming. Um, so we've been planning for that. Um, my team has been really aggressive at, at curtailing any spending. We have an essential spend only order in place. Uh, we were already trimming before this happened, uh, but we're not going to cut our way to prosperity. Our kids and our families are going to have more needs than ever at the same time that uh, the threat of local property taxes going down, levies failing, state resources uh, diminishing. Um, those are all real threats to the district that we're staving off for now but can't forever. And that's why that stimulus package is so critical. Only Congress can solve that problem for states, cities, and school districts. Eric, the district has long had uh, partnerships with informal uh, learning institutions and cultural institutions such as the Aquarium, the Natural History Museum, the Zoo, the Science Center, etc. How can those organizations help educate CMSD students during this pandemic and, and in the future? Well, you know, uh, they have also flipped to a lot of digital content, um, but those are all institutions that are examples of what learning could be and should be coming out of this. So there's an opportunity for us to leverage it and make it much, much larger, um, that we actually uh, lean on the learnings of mastery programs and inquiry programs and, and the things that they do, the real artifacts that kids touch that really make learning exciting and fun, um, and that we actually align and leverage how do we, uh, how do we use our institutions much more interdependently uh, to create learning because often right now um, while we try to be integrated um, and I think again the district and our partners have done it more than many um, but still often there are many education institutions that think of those as nice field trips 
and not as integrated learning experiences. And so how do we finally build out once and for all what is the integrated learning experience that those institutions can do? One thing that we've done um, and we're actually preparing summer materials for is we put together for our teachers this week a um, virtual care package and a lot of the resources that we pointed them to was taking a trip to the art museum or going to the aquarium and now we're repackaging those for a summer package to send home to kids and families to say school's out and so you don't have to have the k-12 learning pack at your table but we want you engaged and here's a whole bunch of fun stuff that you can do uh, right from home if you have access given what you've hinted at and what the governor has hinted at uh, kids students children families will see their students spending a lot more time out of school than they um, than in school next year out of your partners who provide out of school time support and activities and enrichment for students are pretty important, have always been important. Do you see a different growing role for them since there will be more out of school time? Well, I think a growing and differentiated role um, because, you know, people are going to have to go back to work and need to, want to, uh, which means somebody's got to watch our kids. And so, you know, we're going to have to look at what role schools and other agencies play in care and in, in daycare and babysitting and, and those sorts of things um, and those partners can be really helpful but if we have to also do it in a social distancing way that means we need a lot more of those partners and a lot more venues for those partners uh, to spread out and to, to to provide that care so I think it's not even a growing role it's a differentiated role too it's not maybe just after school but during the day if we can only bring a subset of kids to school what programming is available for the other kid to go to um, so I think you know programs like boys and girls clubs and you know um, you know all of those are going to be just critical moving forward and in a much bigger demand than than maybe we're thinking uh, might exist before we end Eric I want to give you a chance to speak directly to your kids I'm really proud of my kids. Um, you know, people have said, uh, and I've read it in newspapers, we have a lost generation, and that's just absolutely wrong. Uh, we need to be prepared to support our kids for the stress they've been through, the emotional stress. But kids are resilient, and my kids are resilient, and the art and the music and the creativity and the people who get motivated to be in politics because of how this has been handled or not handled all of that is going to come out of these kids, my kids, and this generation. So I am so proud of my kids. Um, you know, I've actually sent videos directly to my seniors. Uh, some of you have laughed at my hand-washing song with my littlest kids. Um, I'm, I'm just so proud of them, and I just need everybody listening to understand we didn't lose a generation. They're still here. They're still amazing young people. We didn't lose the ability for them to learn. Uh, we just lost a little time. That's all we lost. Eric Gordon is the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. And Eric, as we close to and recognize the end of Teacher Appreciation Week, I'm just going to provide a little shout out to uh, CMSD CEO Appreciation Moment here. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for your leadership. We, we deeply, deeply appreciate you and your work. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure. And thanks for having me today. It's been great to have you on. I want to thank all of you as well for joining us for our conversation today with Eric Gordon. As I said, he's CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, and we presented this today virtually thanks to our partners at IdeaStream. 
Our forum today is part of our Education Innovation Series, which is sponsored by Nordson and PNC, with additional support provided by the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. We appreciate their support of our education programming and their support of all we do here at the City Club. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, and Key Bank, along with Nordson and PNC, and additional support from Thompson Hine, and many more generous members, sponsors, and donors who are all listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate or consider becoming a member of the City Club. You can learn more about that at cityclub.org slash members. We're going to continue to present our forums online throughout this time, either on virtual platforms here or here at the IdeaStream studios. Next Friday, May 15th, please join us to hear from Ohio State Senators Nikki Antonio and Matt Dolan, who will talk about state policy priorities and responses. If you have particular thoughts about that forum or questions you want to line up ahead of time, please tweet them at the City Club or text them over to that text number again, 330-541-5794. And if you have additional ideas about topics or speakers we should cover or feature while we're sheltering in place and presenting these virtual forums, and also as we get prepared to welcome people back to in-person forums, we're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. We'll see you soon. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.